Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 66. It's late 1811, and Sir John Craddock has just dispatched Lieutenant Colonel John Graham into the Eastern Cape frontier to rid the Zurfeld of the Amakosa. Craddock suffered from none of his predecessors' inhibition against taking vigorous military action, and his campaign switched from Caledon's passive conciliation to offensive measures. This did not reflect a change in policy in London, in fact, far from it. As you'll hear next podcast, he was subsequently reprimanded by the government and sharply reminded that his main aim was to keep all his troops available for the defence of Cape Town against the French. But the colonists applauded him along with Major Jacob Kyler, the Utenhaeg Landrost. As you heard last episode, by December, Graham had assembled 167 light dragoons, 221 infantry of the line, 431 men of the Cape Regiment, and a detachment of Royal Artillery. His troops were joined by 450 mounted Burger volunteers on commando and about 500 of their Achterreyers. This was the largest colonial army ever assembled on the eastern frontier, and the Amakosa took note. They were not going to take on a huge army of this size directly. There was also a change in how the colonists viewed the Amakosa from now on. Previously, they were seen in an ambivalent light, the trekboers and farmers using the Amakosa as long-term laborers and trading partners, but from now on, they were the enemy. This dichotomy was going to be cleared up soon. Lieutenant Colonel Graham was what you could call a fundamentalist. He ordered his army to pursue the Amakosa men all the way to their homesteads, where they should be killed along with their chiefs. The stark objective, as Craddock repeated later to the colonial secretary, was to impress upon the minds of these savages a proper degree of terror and respect. They would then be deterred from ever entering the Zurfeld again, or so he thought. This policy was going to be bewildering to the Amakosa, who had become used to the habitual raiding and skirmishes and general plundering followed by a ceasefire, then a return to life as normal. This had been the rhythm of the frontier, similar to their experience previously, fighting and raiding the Khoikhoi and vice versa. Graham set out to assert unequivocal British military superiority, as historian John Labund writes in his great work called The Land Wars. This meant laying waste to the land in a manner never seen before. We heard last episode how the three British divisions were deployed, one along the coast under Landros Kaila, a second, the approach to the highlands, that would be the Trekboers under Graf Renet Landros Stockenström, and the third in the centre under Graham. Kaila would advance from the Sunday's river mouth towards the great place of Tunga of the Kunukwebe, and on the way, he discovered that in Tlambe, the Rarabe chief, had assembled a large group of warriors from surrounding chieftains through the Addo bush. This densely overgrown country was the bane of the settlers' lives, this area east of the Sunday's river. And Tlambe was going to make a stand there, and personally challenged Kaila to do his worst. Kyla led one of the small scouting patrols, he divided up some of his forces, and on the evening of the 26th December he managed to block a party of Amakosa attempting to outflank him. As Kyla approached these warriors, he thought he was facing the main Amakosa army because there were so many and Chief Nflambi was in their midst. Kyla checked first that the ground behind him was clear to escape, which it was, then told his interpreter to urge Nflambi to leave the Zufeld now. And Tlambe's warriors around him remained silent. They were well disciplined. They had donned red clay, 
Their bodies were naked and they placed formal war masks on their faces. From this frightening sight, Nflambe stepped forward and uttered these few famous words. Give or take a word or two. Apa akuko busi indiza kutla busi kwayo kuzi indi bufumani. Indi akuele itawe imelamo yasituka nasi swatkops. Ele lizwe lelam indi lipumilele emfazweni kwaye ndia kulitrina. Here is no honey, I will eat honey, and to procure it, I shall cross the Sundays, Truka, and Swatkop's rivers. This country is mine, I won it in war, and shall maintain it, he shouted. He shook his spear at Kyla with one hand, and with the other raised the horn to his mouth and blew it. His warriors rushed towards Kyla, who retreated, and his men fired back as they did so. But it was dusk and then the Amakosa melted away into the bush, and that was the first major skirmish of this campaign, which ended with no result. Kyla sent a message to Graham about Nklambi's tactics, and on the 27th of December, the commander revised his strategy. Kyla was asking for reinforcements, believing he'd now faced the main body of the Zufot Amakosa. The Jutenheg Landrost had also realized that Tungwa's Christmas Day comments you heard about last episode, that he was willing to move, was merely a ruse to buy himself time to escape. Ntlambe and the rest of the Zurfeld Amakosa had established themselves in a dense section of the forest into which they'd driven all their cattle. Graham knew that meant they could last any siege, so they had to be flushed out of this dangerous Albany thicket maze. He decided to concentrate his forces around the thickets and sent messengers to the two flanking groups to join him for a final assault on the fugitives. Under Stockenström, the Landros of Graf Reinet had been posted north of the Zurfeld with the Trekboers, just beyond the Zurfeld proper, in order to defend Brenki's Huchter and its farms. When he received Graham's message on the night of the 27th, he questioned the wisdom of concentrating all the British firepower on the thickets. Stockenström felt that Graham had exaggerated the size of Entlambi's army, and that his own magistracy of Graf Reinet was in grave danger. So he then made a fateful decision to ride down to Graham and discuss the order before he allowed his burghers to move into the Zutfeld proper. What's interesting to note, as the small party prepared to leave the following morning, is that a debate ensued around the Boer campfire that night. The rights and wrongs of expelling the Amakosa from the Zutfeld were earnestly debated, and the outcome was not clear. Some of the elders of the Boers maintained that we were not altogether in the right said Stockenstrom's son, Andries, later. A few even protested that they firmly believed that the Kosa did buy the Zurfeld from the Dutch authorities, and two or three of them affirmed with oaths that they had seen in certain herds some of the oxen which had been received in payment. But others firmly denied this altogether. Some of the Boers were ambivalent, but that attitude would harden shortly. So, at dawn on the 28th of November, 1811, under Stockenstrom bid his friends goodbye, and accompanied by an escort of 40 men, headed off on his mission to Graham. The camp he left was on the north side of the Zürbach, which formed the northern ramparts of the Zürfeld. Today, that would be southwest of Riebeck East, north of Patterson. If you check this area on Google Earth, you'll see it features a sharply rising part of the Cape Fold Mountains, and the track to reach Graham was a narrow ridge, then through a pass. From there, Stockenstrom's party would descend rapidly to the Zurfeld 
and to a place where Graham had established his headquarters. It was a spectacular ride through forests of giant trees and brooding ravines. Stockenström knew this pass well, and as they approached, his escort spotted bands of Amakosa coming out of the woods below and assembling on both sides of the footpath and up onto the ridge. Some of the Boers wanted to attack the Amakosa at once, but Stockenström thought it best to approach them. He rode up, then dismounted. His plan was to persuade the chiefs to leave the Zurfeld, and he hoped to avoid spilling blood. Fourteen of the Boers joined him, but the others thought better of the situation and remained a short distance away. At this point, Damatkosa and the Boers did not know that Kaila had already opened fire on Nklambe's people closer to the coast. Damatkosa said later that they did actually a plan to attack Stockenstrom immediately, but his confident decision to approach and talk to them undermined their intention. The Boers and Damatkosa sat down to parley, sharing a smoke. As Amatkosa oral tradition has it, at this moment a messenger arrived from the low country with the news that there had been a battle between Ntlambe and Kaila the day before. The Amatkosa began whispering amongst each other. The Boers were also then turning and muttering about a bad situation. Stockenstrom smiled, thinking it was a minor issue, but his fate was sealed. David Sturman's people had been expelled from their territory around the Khamtus River after Boer complaints, if you remember, and his Khoi clan were amongst the Amatkosa warriors that day. One of Sturman's fighters approached Stockenstrom with a basket of milk, and as the elderly Landrost accepted it, the Khoi drove a spear into his back. In a few seconds, twelve boers were dead, cut to pieces by assegais. Two of the boers managed to crawl into the bush and hid. The others further away leapt onto their horses, and galloped along the ridge towards Graham's camp, hours away through a circuitous and winding route down through the rough bush. Another survivor was a San, a bushman bearer, who'd accompanied the Boers. He slipped away, then ran cross-country in the other direction, up the mountain towards the highland camp, where the younger Stockenstrom awaited his father's return. He stumbled into the camp at two that afternoon, having run for most of the day, shouting that the whole party had been murdered, and that the Amakosa were on his trail. Andri Stockenstrom and a group of Boers then mounted their horses and galloped towards the Amakosa. As they came to the ridge of the pass, they saw the warriors below them running up the mountain. The Boers opened fire, hitting many of the warriors. They were so tightly packed as they ran. The Amakosa began shifting to outflank Stockenstrom, so he retreated, and the Boers formed a lager with their wagons. The ammunition was in the center, and they began slowly moving towards the ridge. Later that night, they rode out and found one of the two men who'd crawled away, while the second had retreated to the camp on his own. War is messy business, but so too is revenge. Old scores were being settled, one involving the Khoikhoi and the other the Amatkosa. Sturman's people had drawn blood for the eviction from the Khamtus by Kaila, acting on behalf of the Trekpurs. The Khoilan, where they'd been promised peace, had been summarily handed over to the Boers. The promises the British made were not being kept, and the Amakosa and Khoikhoi were now implacably opposed to the empire. Then, in the case of the Amakosa who killed Stockenstrom, most were of the Amadange chieftain. They had never forgotten how the Boer commandant Adrian van Jasfeld had thrown tobacco into the midst of the warriors, and as the men scrambled for this luxury, his trick Boers had shot them down like dogs, if you remember. 
Stockenstrom's murder was regarded in the colony as an act of reprisal for these earlier misdeeds. On the frontier, no one forgets. Violence begets violence, which is something that Kyla and Graham were going to learn the hard way. The Fourth Frontier War was going to be short, but it would be brutal. Graham received a message from Inchlambi requesting a rendezvous below the Zurbach. Stockenstrom had been killed just below this point, but Graham did not know that. It must have surprised Inchlambi when Graham accepted, and even more so when he agreed to the terms, which included that he should come only with ten British soldiers. Graham left his camp before the survivors of the Stockenstrom attack had arrived there, which they would later in the evening of the 28th. Graham's meeting with Ntlambia was to be held on the morning of the 29th. When he arrived at the selected spot near the thickets, there were no Amakosa in sight, but the British knew they were in the thick bush nearby, and the interpreter merely shouted at the thickets. Eventually, a voice replied that Ntlambia was on his way. Amatkosa warriors walked out of the bush, then Ntlambi finally appeared. The Amatkosa formed a circle around Graham, who stood with his escort, joined inside the ring by Ntlambi. The Rarabi chief demanded to know why the British had marched into the Zurfeld, saying that he'd bought the Zurfeld, which belonged to his people. He repeated his claim that he'd purchased it for a herd of oxen, and repeated what the Boers had said themselves around the campfire shortly before. As the two spoke, suddenly Boers galloped through the wall of Amakosa and handed Graham a note. It was from his camp with the news of the killing of Stockenstrom and his men. Graham was in a tight spot. Calmly studying the paper, he looked up at Ntlambi and said the letter was from Governor Craddock, who was now acknowledging that Ntlambi had a right to the Zufeld and had ordered the British to withdraw. The Amakosa should... Cultivate the arts of peace, said Graham. Then he saluted the Amakosa chief and ordered his men to mount their horses, and the British galloped off. Once they'd reached a safe distance, Graham told his men about what the letter really said. They all knelt down to say a prayer for their own escape. They were about to experience the same fate as Stockenstrom's party, but Graham's quick thinking had saved them. Now, if there ever was a moment where the gloves came off, this was it. On the 1st of January, 1812, the British launched a full assault which Stockenstrom had tried to avoid. My intention, wrote Graham later, is to attack the savages in such a way which I confidently hope will leave a lasting impression on their memories. His plan was to challenge the Amatkosa in their hideouts, to head deep into the Albany thickets, where they had never been attacked before. Instead of horses, his men were going to march. He divided his force into combinations of Boer and Khoikhoi, which he believed were the best at fighting this kind of battle. There were six companies, each consisting of 60 Boers and 20 Khoikhoi. While the actual number of Amakosa killed after five days of bush fighting from Yaron numbered a scant 12, Graham had succeeded in two ways. Firstly, the Amakosa had believed that the colonists could not fight in the bush and this was now proven wrong. That demoralized the warriors who thought of the thickets as a kind of invisibility cloak, while the colonists were still extremely nervous and tended to blaze away with their muskets at the slightest sound, the Khoikhoi were highly effective in the bush. Secondly, one of these mixed groups of Boer and Khoikhoi had found and cold-bloodedly killed Tungwa, the old man of the Khonukwebe. The chief was sick, and when companies of the Boers and Khoikhoi began entering the woods, Tungwa's attendants carried him on a litter, to a thick part of the bush, thinking it was inaccessible, 
There was only a single narrow path to his hiding place. But the track was discovered and Kungwa was found fast asleep. The commando members did not even wake him up, but shot him and his attendees dead as they slept. We have spent a lot of time over the past ten episodes or so hearing about this canny leader of the Kronokwebe, that clan of mixed Khoikhoi and Amakosa, but finally his luck had run out. After Tungwa, the target was in Tlambe. There's a biography of importance written by Scotsman Lieutenant Robert Hart, who was initially drafted with the British forces, then joined the Cape Regiment. He was present throughout the Zutfeld campaign, and his detail on what happened next has filled quite a few holes in the overall story. His narrative avoids sensationalism, which is unusual for military reminiscences of that time. He wrote on the 12th of January 1812 that two companies under a Boer commandant had been sent to find in Tlambe. It was a fruitless but brutal hunt. Every Amatosa man and woman they found they shot. Graham had said that all men should be shot at if not shot down, but the Boers and the Cape Regiment had decided to kill everyone they found. Hart's journal is illuminating because it's so matter-of-fact. Damakosa had never killed women and children in warfare up until now, and this was an inexcusable and unfamiliar atrocity. At times, the Boers and the Cape Regiment soldiers could not differentiate who was who in the thick bush. They would just open fire on anything that was hiding or moving. The blacks were shot indiscriminately, women as well as men, wherever found, and even though they offered no resistance, wrote Lieutenant Hart. By the late afternoon of the 12th, Graham was approached by a messenger sent by one of Ntlambe's sons to ask for permission to remain in the Zurfeld at least until the harvest was over, then they'd leave. But it was too late for niceties. This was precisely what Graham was not willing to do, so he had the messenger seized, put in irons, then tied to a wagon wheel with a leather strap around his neck, and interrogated. After being turned on the wheel, which is a form of torture, the messenger weakened and promised he'd lead Graham's men to the place where two hundred warriors and Nflambe were resting. Captain George Fraser was tasked with hunting down Nflambe. He was one of Graham's old Cape Regiment officers and took off at dawn with 303 Boers, 27 free slaves, four subalterns, five sergeants, six buglers and 120 Cape Regiment troops. Leading them was the Amakosa messenger with his leather strap like a leash. Three days later, they were still searching and it dawned on the posse that they'd been led up the garden path by this man. He is one of those many in this story whose name we do not know, but there can be no doubt that he knew where Nflambe was and was unwilling to give him up. He'd rather die than defile his good name. The messenger understood his fate. After three days of deception, the accumulated anger of his captors meant he was put to death for setting a false trail. There is the possibility that it is precisely when Atlambi had expected, because as Fraser's commando marched around the bush with its bugles and its boots, the chief had taken his people and their cattle and made a hasty flight along the coast from his lands near the Bushman's River mouth. He headed towards the Great Fish River, which he crossed on around the 15th of January, 1812. It was an immense exodus. The old and infirm were left behind, but the rest knew that their survival depended on rapidly crossing the great fish to the east, then they settled along the coast near the Buffalo River, outside modern-day East London. 
When Graham discovered that Ntlambi had escaped, his army headed off in an attempt to intercept the Rarabi chief, but gave up when they realized they were too far ahead. That was his order after all, besides arresting or killing Ntlambi, so the British had apparently achieved their aims. With Ntlambi gone and Kungwa dead, it was time to lay waste to the Amatkosa crops. These were beginning to ripen on the Zurfeld, and on the 17th of January, Scotsman Hart wrote, Two parties of 100 men each were sent to destroy the gardens and burn the villages. The gardens here are large and very numerous, and here are also the best garden pumpkins and largest Indian corn I have ever seen, he exclaimed. Some of the pumpkins are five and a half feet round and the corn ten feet high. The British were deploying a scorched earth policy, and on the 18th, 300 men and 600 oxen were sent to trample these gardens, and eventually this commando destroyed all the Amakosa crops on the Zufeld. Six weeks later, Graham had managed to drive all Amakosa from the Zufeld. The smaller clans saw the writing on the wall and had moved before being shot down. Meanwhile, Graham was completely uncompromising. The only way of getting rid of them is by depriving them of the means of subsistence and continually harassing them he reported. The whole force is constantly employed in destroying prodigious quantities of Indian corn and millet, taking from them the few cattle which they conceal in the woods, and shooting every man who can be found. This is detestable work. We are forced to hunt them like wild beasts. This is the man who was to give his name to Grahamstown. No wonder its name was changed recently to Makanda in memory of Kosa warrior and prophet Makanda Kaikele, who is still to meet. By the first week of March 1812, it was all over. In two months, Lieutenant Colonel John Graham had accomplished what an entire century of VOC rule had failed to achieve to remove the Amakosa from the Zufeld, the first of what became known as the forced removals of South Africa. About 20,000 Amakosa had fled, several hundred were dead, thousands of cattle seized. Graham then ordered that any Amakosa left in what he called the colony should be shot on sight unless bearing a pass from the other Rarabi chief Nika. Colonists were threatened with the same if they crossed over the Great Fish River eastwards, but this was never actually enforced. And finally succeeded in drawing this line between the Amakosa and the Cape Colony, the government had rolled its power right up to the west bank of the Fish River. This was an illusion, however, as you're going to hear. The border was impossible to shut down. A few hundred troops across the hundreds of square kilometers, that is the Zurfeld, trying to stop Boers and Amakosa and the coin, and even the sand from scampering about the felt was always a fool's errand. Next episode, we'll hear how Graham set about building his defensive positions along the Fish River, including a town that took his name, and we'll also return to other matters further afield. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there at deslatham. Until next, tootsies.